The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Welcome to church, church family, um, via online. Would you pray with me as we get into God's Word? Father, as we come to your word this morning, would you glorify yourself in us? Would you glorify yourself in your church? Would you show us your goodness and your mercy? And would you teach us what praise looks like? It's in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start this morning by reading for us Psalm 34. It's where we'll be this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to that. Psalm 34, David writes, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles, because the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack, no, lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cries. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. That's Psalm 34. And a great passage of scripture it is. It strikes me this morning that it does not go without saying, though it should, that church is about God. That the Christian life is about God. That our gathering and our scattering, our eating and our fasting, our waking and our sleeping, our speaking and our refraining from speech, our working and our playing and our praying, are all meant to be done not with self in mind, but with God in mind. Not with God as a peripheral uh, piece of the experience, but with God as the center and the whole. Church, what we are doing right now is about God. It's about God. 
where, we've made, where we have moved ourselves to the center, we would be wise to repent. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Psalm 34.1, which we just read, I will extol the Lord when at all times His praise will be on my lips always. It seems simple, something that should go without saying. Church is about God. It's not about us. But the gravity of the human heart is insidiously self-centered. Incurvitus in se is a Latin theological phrase first attributed to St. Augustine. The meaning of it is curved inward on oneself, curved inward on oneself. The reformer Martin Luther expanded on the concept in his commentary on Romans, saying the essence of all sin is mankind curved in upon himself. This is his way of saying, all sin is caused by a pre-existing me-before-God instinct. It's also to say that once sin is committed, once it's put in action and committed to, it begins to compound upon itself and produce a blinding effect in our souls to the glory and goodness of God. It turns us increasingly away from tasting and seeing the goodness of God and moves us more and more inward upon ourselves. Mankind curved in upon himself. It's a potent image. It's a powerful picture. Why? Because it's an, it's an image of sickness. It's an image of degeneration. It's a picture of the loss of an uprightness our souls once possessed in the garden. It's, it's a picture of a condition under which we suffer without any real say in the matter. Our fixation on ourselves is a sub subconscious, soul-level self-sabotage. A subconscious, soul-level self-sabotage. A fixation on ourselves is the interstate to depression, anxiety, fear, and want. I will spare you statistics this morning, but all statistics of our modern society, which is obsessed with itself, would confirm this. The unfortunate reality, as we work through the bad news here, is that we don't have much of a say in the matter of our obsession with self on a theological level. Psalm 51.5, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This is David's way in Psalm 51 as he seeks repentance of saying, Surely, I was born curved in on myself. The Apostle Paul speaks for us all, if we're honest, in Romans 7, verses 14 and 15 and 24 and 25. He says this, We know that the law is spiritual. That is to say, the law is good. It's from God. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that I do. And then he says this, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Who could possibly rescue me from this body that is subjected to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Church, if we could uncurl our crooked souls, we would have by now. We can't in our own strength. We need saving. We need a savior. You, like me, may feel a momentary sting of conviction 
in this moment as you are presented and I am presented with the biblically and empirically verified reality of the God-minimizing and self-exalting nature we inherited from our father Adam. But the reality is the degenerate curve of our souls is not straightened out once and for all by conviction sting alone. We try to stand up straight for a moment, we'll prop ourselves up against the wall of the law, but give us a few hours, or days at most, and if we're paying any attention, we will come to see, inevitably, and feel again, our inability to straighten out our own spiritual spines, in our own strength. So what is our solution? What's our way forward? Where is the good news in this? Well, we've already read it. Thanks be to God who delivers me and you through Jesus Christ. We are not saved through works of righteousness on our, of our own, through our own ability to straighten ourselves out. We are saved through the uprightness of Jesus Christ in our place once and for all. This is why Psalm 34, 5 says, those who look to him are radiant. They're radiant. They shine. Those who look to God shine. Their faces are never covered with shame. Never. David here in the Psalms puts it in the positive. He says, God's praise is our good. God's praise is our greatest good. It makes us radiant. The only self-help software that we can run on the hard drives of our souls is the program titled, Look to God and Then Keep Looking. The results of this program are a guarantee. It will never be infected with a virus. Look to God with all that is in you, and you, Christian, will become radiant. Your face will glow. Wisdom will brighten your disposition. Always. It is a guarantee your face will never be covered with shame when you are looking to God. Uh, the modern sage and unrivaled prophetess of 2020, the Queen of Arendelle, Elsa, raises a sharp descent to Psalm 34:5 and the truth that those who look to God are the ones that become radiant. The way to radiance, Elsa claims, is not looking to God, but rather looking deeply inside yourself. She indoctrinates us with her hell-sent propaganda as she sings at her moment of self-realization at the end of the movie Frozen 2, of which I have a PhD because I have two daughters. She sings this, show yourself, step into your power, throw yourself into something new. You are the one you've been waiting for all your life. You are the one you've been waiting for all your life. Elsa says, you are your own answer. You are your ultimate authority. You are your ultimate good. You need yourself. And Elsa says, anyone who tries or is trying to impose any external authority, any form of absolute truth on you, is guilty of a criminal offense. She cries with absolute certainty. And in the movie, as she sings, she metamorphosizes before our eyes from a lowly caterpillar, green dress and ponytail Elsa, into a beautiful, 
full-fledged butterfly, white dress, and hair down, Elsa. Her hair waves freely in the air as a visual representation of her inward freedom that has been found by looking deep within herself. The millions of us who buy the lie will in time find that she's selling snake oil. There can be no freedom found from looking inward into ourselves. There will only be bondage. The bondage of our inward curve will only be exasperated if we forsake the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, and his absolute authority for the imposter of our culture's my truth, or your truth, or his truth, or her truth. There is only God's truth. As C.S. Lewis said, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Lewis prophetically ahead of his time, anachronistically exposed Elsa's empty promise when he wrote in the book Mere Christianity years ago, the principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. And then Lewis says this, look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. That last sentence could be a thesis statement for everything I have to share this morning. Our souls need to praise God. They need to look beyond self. Our souls need God's praise in the same way that our bodies need oxygen. Praising God is how we breathe in and out spiritually. It's how we draw life. Praise equals vibrancy. The lack of praise equals a decrepit wilting. But church, God does not need us to praise him. We are the ones who need to praise him. God is not dependent on anything or anyone. He's certainly not dependent upon our praise to exalt himself and glorify his name. It is us who need the praise of God. Binding our souls to God's praise is the most selfish thing we could do. Binding our souls to the praise of God is the most self-serving activity we could undertake. How? Why? What do I mean? Because praising God, and only in praising God, is the act that actually aligns us perfectly with our true nature, the way we were wired, what we were made to do. And when it does that, it sets us free. Binding ourselves to God's praise frees us. It's in the same way that a fish is only truly free when it's bound by water. We are only truly free when bound in love to the praise of God. Psalm 34, 8, the psalmist writes, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. This is David holding God forward before us this morning holding God before us, instructing us to taste him, 
instructing us to look upon him. David is saying, isn't he beautiful? Isn't he delicious? Sounds weird, but that's what he's saying. It's like if we were to go to someone's house and the host was to set before us a perfectly cooked, medium-rare ribeye steak, not done in that horrible way to be cooked and fried into decimation in the overwell state. And the host holds before us this steak, and he says, try the steak. Sink your teeth into that. Isn't it good? Isn't that good? Tell me it's good. It's good. Grilled to perfection. The reality is this instruction from David brings us all too often to reckon with the fact that we can't taste God in that way. That we're not tasting God in that way. That we're not seeing God in that palpable, visceral, experiential way, but we merely have a conceptual God, the idea of God floating somewhere in the ether of our cognitive abilities. Sure, God's good, but there hasn't been the taste of honey on our tongue. Why? Why can't we reach out and taste God the same way I, in a moment of weakness, might reach for ice cream in my freezer. Why is God so hard for us to taste, so hard for us to see? In 1992, the country singer Waylon Jennings released his album with an incredible title, Too Dumb for New York City, Too Ugly for L.A. Listen to these lyrics in the title track of that record. I made my way to Tinseltown, to Hollywood and Vine, out among the pretty faces. I'd surely find a place for mine. The way I walk, the way I talk, they'll hang on every word. But don't call me, I'll call you, was all I ever heard. In L.A., what they're thinking, that ain't what they talk about. At least in New York City, there's never any doubt. And then Jennings says this, I'm too dumb for New York City, but I'm too ugly for L.A. These words, I think, diagnose what ails us in our beauty problems as Angelinos well. New York, he says, measures you by intellect, but L.A. is a city that measures us by our beauty. We here seek to be beautiful. We need to be beautiful if we have any chance of making it in the industry. We exalt in proximity to beautiful people and beautiful things. But by what standard are we measuring beauty? And who ultimately gets the standard for beauty? Who ultimately gets to say what is beauty? Well, shining lights and billboards, the silver screen, print and digital media, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, are feeding and forming our perception of beauty in Los Angeles. Because of this, even inside the church, even in those who fill its seats and often in those who fill its pulpits, we have all too often allowed the perception of beauty in our hearts to be passively formed by the voice of culture, rather than intentionally, devotedly, disciplined pursuit of feeding and forming our perception of beauty according to God's standard of beauty laid out in his word. We can't taste or see God's beauty because we are satiating our spiritual appetites with hollow imposter beauties. 
Pastor John Piper says it this way, the ultimate problem of every human being is not merely that we are bent against God, that we have a sin nature, which we are, but that we are blind to God. My stubborn heart creates a stupor. It creates a haze. It creates a horrible blindness so that I can stand before a sermon, before the Bible, before a song exalting the beauty of Christ and see nothing attractive, boring. We are not just in rebellion to the authority of God. We are blind to the beauty of God. We have a beauty problem. To taste and see that the Lord is good not only requires, one, a miraculous inner working of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the eyes of our heart, which Ephesians 1.18 says, the Apostle Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the eyes of our heart so that we would know the hope to which we are called. But it also requires, in addition to the Spirit's moving, a pursuit, a moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour, day-by-day, feeding and forming of our perception of beauty through prayer, through meditation, through scripture study, and even scripture memorization. Church, we are being fed and formed by culture every waking moment of every day. If we are not intentional to guard our diets and feed our souls real spiritual nutrition, we will only know how to crave the cheap, drive-through, preservative-filled, high-fructose corn syrup, artificial beauty of our culture and age that quiets the grumbling of our soul's stomachs, but never truly gives us any nourishment. Oh, that we would be jealous this morning for our own joy in God. for our corporate joy in God. Let's examine our diets, church. Perhaps we would be wise to consider what we've been tasting and seeing on a regular basis. Perhaps we'd be wise to consider if our diet is curving us in upon ourselves where there is nothing to be found, or inflaming spiritual affection, opening spiritual eyes that we might taste and see the true goodness, the true life-giving, freeing goodness of God, that we might become the blessed ones who take refuge in Him. Church, perhaps our souls would find themselves refreshed if we replaced our steady diets of network news and Twitter and blogs and articles and Instagram and Facebook and TikTok with Crazy idea, meditation on God's word. Memorization of God's holy word that gives life. What if, just what if, it actually is as good as David says it is? Church, perhaps we should consider spending less time working anxiously to build and expand the influence of our own platforms and more time exalting God with every means, all of our strength, every moment we are offered, and praying fervently that God would be exalted and known in Los Angeles, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our souls, and in our country, and in the world. Oh, that God would be known, we would find freedom. 
church, perhaps we would find a surprising release for the internal angst we're all carrying. If we started right now placing less weight on making sure our own opinions get heard and voiced. Less time and less energy trying to correct and silence the misinformed and dangerous views of others. And invested that sideways energy in the straight path of diligently seeking to hear God's wise voice through devoted listening and prayer, and then and only then, once we've carefully, thoughtfully, humbly listened for the wise voice of God that Psalms 29 says breaks cedars, strips forest bears, the only voice a reminder that actually has the power to change and transform a human heart, starting with mine. Perhaps only, and after, only when we have listened carefully to that voice should we begin to speak. Psalm 34, 9 through 14, fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Question this morning, do you love life? Do you desire to see many good days? I do. I desire to see many good days. I'm selfish like that. I just, I just want to enjoy my life. I do. Well, God's word here tells me and you that if that's what we want, many good days, we need to start listening like a child to the teacher of the Holy Spirit, of the Word of God, as he teaches you and me the fear of the Lord. According to the Holy Spirit speaking through David here, the fear of the Lord is the pathway not only to security and life, but to every good thing. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The fear of the Lord is the path on which we come to see many good days. So what does that look like, Lord? What does it look like in action for me, for you, for Story City Church to fear the Lord? What does that look like? Teach us. Tell us. Okay, the Lord answers. Lesson one. Lesson one in the fear of the Lord. Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your tongue from evil. It's the first lesson. Keep your lips from speaking lies. Keep your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and start to do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Here, the Lord says, is how you find many good days and live in the fear of the Lord. Use your tongue carefully. Use your tongue carefully. Speak no evil. Keep lies from your lips. It seems like an odd turn in the text at first, not where we expected the teacher to take us. But it's not coincidental. The word of God is intentional. Our teacher in the fear of God needs us to see that there is a direct, inseparable link between our ability to love life and see many good days and how we use the two-pound piece of flesh in our mouth called our tongue. It says the fear of the Lord is proved and made known by our words. Proverbs 10:19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. 
Ecclesiastes 5.2, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Church, we don't need a master's divinity to understand this text. We don't need a master's degree of divinity to understand this text this morning. It's telling us one way to keep our tongues from evil, one way to walk in the fear of the Lord, is to talk less. It's to talk less and listen more. To others, yes, but far more so to God, to listen to God. And only after we've listened to God to speak. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Whoa. Think about that one. Consider the statement of Christ. Careless words, not evil words, not wicked words, not deceitful words, careless words. Every one of them. An account before God. Spoken in private, spoken in public, spoken to vent, spoken in self-preservation or self-protection. Every syllable we've ever spoken of subtle gossip, every little white lie, every verbalized false assumption or accusation. For every last one, there's going to be an accounting according to Jesus. What a standard. <laughs> what a standard. How then should we speak? When should we speak? Should we all become mimes and just never use our mouth again? We can't always be silent. Ecclesiastes 3.7 itself tells us there is a time to be silent, but there's also a time to speak. These are complex matters, but I'd start by saying this, church. The single best way that you and I can use our tongue is to praise the Lord. God's praise is always safe. It is right. It is appropriate use of our tongues. That's why Psalm 34.1 starts off by saying, I will extol the Lord when? At all times. His praise will be on my lips always. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear it. Those who are suffering are going to hear me glorifying the Lord. And then the next verse says this. Then they're going to glorify God with me as the Spirit moves. Then we're going to exalt His name together. Good news. Oh, that our words, church, today and tomorrow, and this week and next week, would carry in them the sweet, diffusing aroma of Christ's praise into a world that is miserable talking about itself all the time. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice, and then glorify the Lord with me. Exalt his name together. Then we'll see many good days. Then we'll find that we lack nothing. God's praise is our greatest good. Verse 19 and 20, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. It's not lost on me because I've been through seasons like it in myself even recently where talking about the Lord's goodness, talking about the freedom that comes with praise almost has a sting to it. It almost hurts. Why? Because you're suffering. Because you're hurting. Because you're grieved. Because there's anguish in your soul. Because deep down you are questioning, 
I believe conceptually that God would be good, but I'm having a hard time applying that to my life. Has he forsaken me? Is there any goodness coming? God, this just hurts. It's not lost on me this morning that many of us listening are in that place. To those of you that that's true, I want to hold this verse out to you. It's not my words. These are the Lord's. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. Your pain will pass. Your pain will pass. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Bring a sacrifice this morning. Sometimes praise is a sacrifice. It's biblical. It hurts, but we choose volitionally to orient and posture ourselves and surrender and worship to Jesus Christ and God because we know and can look backwards, even as we're in pain, to his faithfulness in our lives. But let's end as we land the plane with a very important question. Let's end with this important question. How can we know that we know that we know that the promises of Psalm 34 of deliverance and rescue and rejoicing really belong to us, that they're really ours, that this really applies to us? How can we know that God will deliver us from our troubles? Because if we're thinking honestly, you and I, as we read this psalm, We'll have to at some point admit and acknowledge we haven't always done what Psalm 34 is instructing us to do. We struggle to do it so often. We don't fear the Lord as we should. We don't keep our tongues from evil all the time. We failed many times over to turn from evil and choose to do good. So how can we know that in spite of the promises of Psalm 34 not aligning with our sin, that they're still offered to us always? Answer, we need to see Jesus. Jesus was the only truly righteous person, the only man who has ever truly embodied all of Psalm 34 and its commands to do good. He was the only person who's ever walked the face of the planet in the perfect fear of the Lord, always used his tongue for good, and yet this Jesus the Son of God, was denied every promise of Psalm 34. He died alone. He was not delivered, though he was righteous. He gave his life on a cross where he was blotted out as though he had done evil. Why? On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And verse 15 of Psalm 34 says that the Lord's ears are attentive to the cry of the righteous. And yet, when Jesus cried out on the cross, God turned his face away. He was met with rejection and silence. Why? Church, the answer to understanding this is the key to the Christian life. It's the key to praise. It's the key to joy. It's the key to many good days. On the cross, Jesus became a sacrifice standing in our place. He took our punishment for the way we use our tongues, for the fact that we don't turn from evil and do good upon his shoulders. He suffered as you and I deserved. God poured out his justice on Jesus. He blotted him out in our place as though he had done evil. The righteous suffered in the place of the unrighteous. 
Why? So that when we, you and I, the unrighteous, cry out to God, though we deserve to be denied, we receive Christ's reward who died in our place. We get the deliverance he deserved. Isaiah 53, 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Psalm 34, 22, no one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Church, the one person who ever truly took refuge in God with all of his heart was condemned. Why? So that we who take refuge in all sorts of things that are not God all the time could be delivered by grace and forgiveness and mercy that can never be removed from us when we come to God through faith in Jesus, surrender our lives, and enter into the life of glad praise, glad worship, freedom, many good days. Church, this is the Christian life. This is what we need to seek to model and live. This is what we need to give our energy to, seeing Christ, seeing his beauty, tasting his goodness. These realities led William Cowper to say this, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Praise is not a burden. Forgiveness has been given. Enjoy your forgiveness, church. Enjoy your forgiveness. It came through Christ. May we be a people marked by the praise of our good God. May we see many good days as we walk in obedience to his word. Let's pray. Father, we need you desperately. We need to see you desperately. We need to seek you desperately. Life finds meaning. It finds root. It becomes joyful, not a burden, when we are pursuing you with all of our hearts. Jesus, by your Spirit, make Story City a place that is full of the praise of God, the transformative, freeing, liberating praise of God, now and forever. In this moment and every moment that is to come, Jesus be glorified and known in this church. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray.